This episode is brought to you by Gen Next Wealth, a fee-only financial planning and investment firm that specializes in working with minority families, helping them bring clarity, harmony, and focus to their finances. This month, Minority Money Podcast and Gen Next Wealth are partnering up to help two families with a free estate plan. That's right, completely free. You can enter one of two ways to get your free estate plan. First, by going to Minority Money Podcast slash giveaway. That's Minority Money Podcast slash giveaway or by sharing the Minority Money page on any of your social media platforms and be sure to tag us. You will have until May 31st to enter into the contest. The winners will be announced the second week of June. Now, let's get back to the show. Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, founder and president of Gen Next Wealth, a fee-only financial planning and investment firm. So today, I am excited to have on the show with us, we are going to have a doctor join us today. I'm going to tell you your name in a second, but I just want to let you know that we are going to have a doctor on the show today talking to us about minority health and what's going on with COVID-19. So as you know, we had some theme shows a couple of months ago for the first four months of the year. We have gotten through that. And once again, I want to thank all of you for your support, for your feedback and everything that we were doing. And I wanted to continue in the vein of doing shows that are going to be related to education, that are going to be related to fitness, finance, and health. And so we might not have a whole theme month like that again, but we may do some theme months coming in the near future. But I wanted to let you guys know that. Also wanted to let you know that if you want, we would very much appreciate any reviews that you can give us on iTunes. So if you have a chance, please go to iTunes and give us a review. We really appreciate it. We'd love to hear the feedback there. And then it also helps us as we continue to try to grow our audience and connect with more minorities that have money questions. This is one of the ways we can do that. So if you wouldn't mind, go to iTunes, give us a review, leave some comments, let us know what you think. Now, now that that's out the way, let's get down to business. So today we're joined by Dr. Rox. And that's Ashley Roxanne is what she goes by. And so today, we're going to have a great conversation about this. So thanks for coming on, Dr. Rox. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I hope everyone's doing okay out there. Yes. I hope they're staying safe. But I want to talk about just really quick, like, so I seen you on IG. I don't know if it was like something you posted, like a story, or somehow you showed up in my feed and you were 24 years old and you were a doctor and you were a young black lady. And I said, Got to have you on. That's it. That's seen enough. <laughs> and I was like, I need to have you on just because I think, you know, becoming a doctor at the age that you become a doctor at and just the stuff that you were saying sounded so, it was just, you know, people needed to hear that. So I wanted to make sure that at least my listeners could hear it. I know you do have your own podcast. If you wouldn't mind, could you give the listeners a little background about yourself? Yeah. So the big thing that people always talk about is how did I graduate medical school at 24 years of age? I'm also a doctor of osteopathic medicine. So there's the difference between being a DO versus an MD. And then just my family background. I grew up as a military kid. I moved a lot. I went to UNC Charlotte for undergrad. I was an anthropology major. And then I went to an osteopathic school in Georgia for medical school. So kind of bouncing around in the South, I would say I'm a Southern woman. <laughs> I'm in Atlanta now at Morehouse for my family medicine residency. Can you talk to us a little bit about osteopathic medicine? Tell us what that is. Absolutely. So I love being a DO doctor. The biggest difference between being a DO and an MD is how our tenants and our principles that we practice. So there are four tenets of osteopathic medicine. What really got me first interested in osteopathic medicine was preventive medicine. The majority of DOs are primary care, and I wanted to do family medicine, which is primary care. So the doctor you see usually when you get a cold or a flu. And then I also really love that A.T. Still, who created DO medicine, he had Black 
people and women in some of his first medical school classes. There were small classes, let's say 30 or so people, but there were Black people there. And this is like the 1800s, so that tells you a lot about his forward way of thinking. And I really always respected that. But then more research, I found out about the preventive medicine parts. And the big thing about osteopathic medicine, it's like an MD. So most people know what an MD is. So your most typical doctor designation in the U.S. But then a DO was like an MD plus the learning of preventive medicine, thinking that the body had the ability to heal itself. So using less invasive practices and then using something called osteopathic manipulative treatments and manipulative medicine, kind of similar to chiropractor manipulation. And you believe that the muscle skeletal system and the lymphatic systems in your body affect your general health and well-being. And if you treat those problems in your body in the skeletal system, that will help with your organs and the way that the body acts as a unit and just really rely on those principles of more preventative than always going towards medication. But we prescribe medication, we deliver babies, we do surgeries. There's no limitations to our scope of practice. And so I usually just tell people for simplicity's sake, even though there are differences, that it's an MD plus the osteopathic manipulative treatment similar to a chiropractor. I like that because I think that a lot of times, as we spoke about before, I think people get their symptoms treated, but not the cause. And I think medicine is sometimes used to treat symptoms and not so much the cause of what's going on. And so the human body is an incredible machine. And, you know, even though, like, I think about something as small as like, you know, when we have swelling, the first thing we want to do is take something to get the swelling down. But the swelling is telling us that there's something wrong and the body is tending to it and swelling is giving extra blood flow to that area to take care of it. And so we take medicine to reverse that. And that's just a small, small example. But I love that. I've heard of the DO designation before, but I wasn't completely sure. And I think you did a great job explaining that. And hopefully the listeners get that. Because I think, especially with everything that's going on with COVID-19 and how it's affecting minorities. And with that, you talked a little bit about your journey to become a doctor. And I didn't even know that about the person that started the DO designation. Like, I love to learn new stuff and I feel like I'm learning on the show. Is there any other parts about the journey to becoming a doctor that you want to include or talk to us about? So for me, the biggest thing was I struggled in the first two years of med school. That's a big thing I want people to know because people always see the glory and graduating younger than most people. And they always like, oh, you must be a genius. But no, I struggled. I had to overcome some things. College for me was fairly easy. I had a great time. College some of the best four years of my life. But I was really young in college. I started college at 15. I graduated at 19. So I was still coming into myself, maturing in a lot of ways now that I can look back as a 25-year-old. Hold on. You just went over that real quick. Like, you started college at 15? Yeah. <laughs> so when I was looking at the bio and all that, I don't think it had the ages <laughs> on there. So you started college at 15. So talk to us about that. So I skipped fourth grade. I started kindergarten at four. Most people start at five. And then I graduated high school in three years instead of four years. Mostly because I was moving a lot. I went to a management school in high school. They would make us take summer classes. And so by the time I moved again to North Carolina after being in Georgia for the first two years of high school, we found out I only needed two more credits because of the summer credits to graduate. So I just went ahead and graduated. And so then I went to UNC Charlotte, loved UNC Charlotte. They totally were the awesome school choice. And then ended up going to medical school. So kind of straight through. But then once I got to medical school, I wasn't at the top of the class anymore. With anything like very mediocre. And I struggled. I'm actually a five-year grad because I struggled. But the great thing is I have a story of triumph. I overcame. I matured. First two years were hard. But then once I got to the third and fourth year, which is more clinicals and hands-on and you're showing your leadership and you're taking on tasks and doing the real work and job of a doctor, but you're a mess, always trying to stay humble, <laughs> that resonated with me more. And so I did better. I would get honors evaluations on almost all my rotations and such. And so I literally went from like very mediocre, not doing that great 
to like more top of the class and doing well and like I said, honoring. So different things for different people. And I always want to give people encouragement that even if you might struggle with one part, you have strengths and weaknesses and just identifying those and trying to make your weaknesses your strengths moving forward. That's an incredible story. I didn't realize like just the timeline. So from the time you graduated high school at 15 and then became a doctor at 24, and now that's absolutely incredible. And I commend you for your hard work and your sacrifice, also your commitment that you made. So my daughter's 14. We have to have a conversation immediately after this. <laughs> I'm messing with, I'm not, she's, she's going to hear this, but I think it'll give her a lot of encouragement. So that's awesome. With that, give me some of your thoughts on COVID-19. What have you been thinking about this whole pandemic and everything that's going on? The big thing about the pandemic is people have been predicting something like this for years. They've definitely shown the research that this came from China. Because I know a lot of people are trying to say that this came from some other sources. That's not true. It's definitely from Chinese providence. And then a lot of people feel like it's a conspiracy. They're like, oh, they released this. But what I want to always tell people is that the flu mutates every year. So the flu mutates. Some you think it's reasonable that there's other mutations and other viruses. Because this is not the first so the thing is, coronavirus is a family of viruses. The actual virus that's affecting us is COVID-19. It's a strain of a coronavirus. It's kind of like there's dogs, so that would be the coronavirus family. And then type of dogs would be cockospaniel. So COVID-19 is a type of coronavirus. They're just using coronavirus, I think, because it's easier to say, and it's catchier than say COVID-19. But COVID-19 is a type of coronavirus. So there's been coronavirus outbreaks before. So like SARS, if people remember that from the early 2000s, people were in masks a lot then too, but just didn't kill as many people. Killed thousands of people, but it didn't spread as rapidly and we didn't shut everything down. The issue with this virus is that it's novel, which means new. They don't know a lot about it. Literally every day there's new updates and new symptoms. The CDC actually yesterday from today the 28th, so 27th, they added six new symptoms to what they consider to be coronavirus-related symptoms. But, you know, some of the less known symptoms are like stroke, so it makes you more probable to have a stroke. It makes you more probable to have like a heart problem, more probable to have difficulties with breathing, and thus lung problems. And then comorbidities, right? So comorbidities is like a disease that makes you more susceptible to other diseases. So like high blood pressure, hypertension, diabetes. A lot of people have even pre-diabetes. So technically they're not diabetic. They don't take insulin, but they have high sugar and low insulin levels. They actually said that asthma is not as later, but I'll throw it in there. Asthma. You know, different diseases that would make people with cancer, immunodeficiencies they are more at risk. And then that's why older people are more at risk because with age, more people develop high blood pressure, more people develop diabetes. It kind of correlates in that way. You're not seeing a lot of five-year-olds with diabetes or high blood pressure. So that's why kids aren't affected as much, but kids still can get COVID-19. I'm trying to think of other things that people always ask me about and I have to answer because there's so much info out there. That's the other thing. There's a lot of people who mean well, I believe, I definitely think people mean well, but there's a lot of conspiracies that are just not true. Like I saw at one time that black people can't get coronavirus. I'm sure we all know that's not true now. But I saw that one time. It was very popular. It was on like a popular page and I saw people reposting it. And while in some ways it was a joke, people took that seriously. (laughs) It's kind of like how one of the leaders recently said, that you can basically inject like Clorox into your lungs and your veins, which is not true, people, to help with coronavirus. And so people did it. So then the Poison Control Center says there's been more calls and reports of people getting poisoned by like and cleaning disinfectants by ingesting them. And that's because people believe those things. So I think it's very important to get information from reliable sources and sources that make sense. I really try to make it in layman's terms too so people can understand like what you're talking about when you're saying all these different things that's why i use a lot of analogies like the dog thing i think people can understand like okay dog cocker spaniel okay coronavirus covid19 i think that's an easy jump to make i think it's also easy to see that how this is not a conspiracy 
most likely. Do Is there such a thing as bioterrorism? Yes. But is it more likely that just as the flu mutates, other viruses mutate, and this virus mutated with bats or some other type of animal? I think that's more probable because it creates a lot of fear mongering when people say, well, someone created this virus in a lab. It's very probable that diseases mutate. Just like animals mutate, if you look underneath a scope, you can see bacteria literally grow. And that helps me understand that there's mutation, evolution, even within ourselves. The fact that people have grown in height, average height over the years. If you go back like 200 years, we used to be like two inches shorter on the average person or something of that nature, right? So that tells us about mutation, evolution. So viruses also are living things that mutate. And this mutation is so new that it has caused lots of symptoms that we don't even know all the symptoms. Washing your hands, you know, social distancing, those are the things that made a difference to see less deaths. And there's no vaccine at this time, so those are the best practices. I realized how many people just don't wash their hands, like routinely. I wash my hands all the time in the hospital. But even at home, I'm like washing my hands a lot more. So that's where the difference for me has come. I wash my hands at home, but I won't say I wash them every hour. I wash them after I do something that requires washing my hands. Versus now, I wash my hands every hour, multiple times, have a little sanitizer bottle next to me. So even I have started washing my hands even more because of coronavirus. I think it's important to point out the fact that not only the coronavirus changes, but all viruses mutate and change. This is why you have to get a flu shot every year, because the nature of a virus is to just change. And I think that with all the misinformation, when I direct people on what they should be looking at, I always say, go to the CDC and then go. So the six things that you were talking about, I just seen that on the CDC. So I just go on the website periodically, check things out there and get the right information. Because I think that there's so much misinformation, it's easy to look at things. And you know, people that are having these conspiracy theories, it's going to be at the beginning, it was kind of fun and to do that. But as you listen to what's going on, and how this disease is one mutating, which it's not going to do that in the lab. And then saying that this coronavirus, understanding that this is a family of viruses, and this is the, I believe, the seventh iteration of the virus. It's not the first, second, or third. I think this is the seventh time that we've seen this same virus, because we had the same thing with MERS, which is also a respiratory virus. And so it's the way that the disease attacks your body, if I'm not mistaken. And that's where it's novel. So the body has never seen this before. And so the body doesn't know how to respond to it. Therefore, we don't know. And so we're continuing to learn stuff. And I think that's where the information that we have needs to be from a reliable source. So I'll just try to summarize what you said and make sure that I understood what you said. With that being said, you talked about a few different things and we're talking about minorities in health and the areas that the disease attacks being hypertension, which is led by minorities. I think Blacks and Latinos lead that, which is being high diabetes, which is led by my, another two groups of minorities. I think it's Blacks and Latinos that lead the country in that. And then we have you know, other underlying respiratory issues, maybe asthma, and maybe a few other things that are, are affecting us. And I think those are the things that is why we have an alarming rate. And then obesity is another one as well, I think. And those are all three things that minorities lead the country in. To know that that's the case, and then continue to live the lifestyle that you live, just not making adjustments. Yeah. One thing I always emphasize to people is preventive medicine. I think a lot of times medicine is reaction. I just think that that's backwards because if you eat well, you are what you eat. So if you're eating well, I'm not saying that you can't have chicken, right? But does it always have to be fried or can you bake it and put the right spices in it? Even jerk chicken is better than fried chicken or like barbecue chicken is better than fried chicken. There are options out there. Or let's say that, like, for I'm a Southern person, so I always go for, like, Southern comfort food, so chicken, mac and cheese. Well, they have noodles out there that are made from chickpeas as opposed to made from, like, starches and bread and noodles. So that's the better option. Or if you like cheesy items, there's cheesy broccoli, right? That's the option as opposed to mac and cheese. So just making decisions that help us have better health. But then we also have to realize systemic racism has contributed to people living in food deserts. Marketing campaigns are aimed towards minority children for tobacco. So that's why we have higher rates of smoking. 
in our communities. If you live in a food desert, you're going to have higher rates of obesity because a pizza is $10 and I can feed all of my family as opposed to if I want to have a salad, that's $7 per person. So now I'm looking at like a $50 bill when I could buy one pizza, two pizzas, even sometimes they have like the buy two, get two free or whatever for $15. So what is the option going to be for a lot of people? I don't blame them. The pizza. (laughs) And then do you live in a safe neighborhood where you feel like you can walk in the neighborhood? I see some areas and I see everyone walking, everyone at the playground. Then I go to other areas and it's just not the same community. Walking in the community, being part of the community, having a community garden, things of that nature. And those are things I want to see, especially in Black and minority communities, because I think that they really would shape health more. Realizing where that comes from, like I said, the systemic history of racism, but then also building our own. I'm big about that. I'm really big about it doesn't have to be someone else who gives a solution. We have the tools. Let's build our community how we want it to look. Couldn't agree more. And I think that, you know, this is totally the reason why minorities need to be more mindful of their health, because something like this comes in. And then I've heard a lot of people call it like natural selection. And because of the choices we have made, because of, and some of it has some underlying racism. And I'll even go this way because I know even in my city, like there are certain things that if I'm trying to eat healthy, I just can't even get those items at certain stores. Like if I wanted to go get something, like I can't, like in my city, I can't get a lot of the health food that I like to eat. I have to go to another city to go get that stuff, whether it's, you know, alternative foods. Like if I'm going to replace some of the starches that I would use instead of having regular rice, we're using cauliflower rice a lot. Instead of using different starches, we replace those with some more vegetables and then just increasing the amount of vegetables that we eat. But the shelf life of vegetables isn't such that where it's going to last as long as some of the processed food. So that is also something else and just the lack of produce. Now, where I live in California, we live in the Central Valley and the Central Valley feeds one sixth of the world's population. We grow everything here. So I'm saying from, you know, from strawberries to lettuce, to pistachios, to almonds, to pomegranates, you name it, we grow it here. So here there's an abundance of it. And like I was telling you before, like just being in California, we're a lot more health conscious than most of the country. And I won't say all of it, but most of the country, we just, we eat a lot of fresh fruits in our daily diet. It's just the way that we eat here because it's here. So when you have someone that doesn't have that stuff available to them, it's easy for the California guy to say, oh yeah, you guys should be eating this. But I think that We just have to be more mindful and make those small things that are going to actually not only make us more healthy, help us improve the quality of life, and then in turn, teaching those healthy eating habits to our children to get it to the next generation. So this is me touching on so many different facets just by what you eat. I think it's so important. And then so talk to us a little bit about the family medicine. Like I know that that's something that you're actually going through your rotations now and talk to us a little bit about that. Yes. So I love family medicine. That's what I want to say first. A lot of people ask, what is family medicine? So family medicine means that I get training in pediatrics, OBGYN, adult medicine, and geriatric medicine. So it's your general practitioner doctor who most people see and most people are familiar with when they say, this is my primary care doctor. And I love family medicine because you build those relationships over time. Like, for example, I see a mom and then I saw her when she got pregnant Then I delivered her baby and now I'm seeing the baby after and I'm seeing her. So I like that continuity and the conversations that we have because I know her, I know her story and now her child's story. So all those things really mean a lot to me those connections, because that's why I got into medicine, because I wanted to help people. I'm kind of a cliche. I wanted to help people. You hear that on and on and on. It's like a broken record. But that was really why I came into medicine. So I feel like I'm helping people on the front line, because a lot of times, at least for primary care, it can't be about the money, (laughs) because we get paid lower than some of the specialists. And so for me, it's about the purpose, the mission, impacting people as a primary care doc. And that's what I really love about family medicine. People say, hey, my, when you think about a doctor, a lot of people think of like a pediatrician, OB, or family doc, or a surgeon. Those are, I would say, those four people people imagine. And I'm glad to be one of those four. They're like, oh, my doctor is Dr. Peterson. You need to talk to my doctor, Dr. Peterson. People say that all the time. They're like, oh, 
I sent my paper over to my doctor, Dr. Pearson. Did she get it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I think that's important because you're really part of someone's family, which is why I think they call it family medicine. Not only because you see everyone in the family, but you truly become part of people's life. You're the doctor that they're talking to on the phone with their friend. They're like, yep, my doctor prescribed me this and my doctor did that. And those are the medications they take every day. And so you're really into people's lives and that aspect, helping them. I love that. And as you're saying that, I think about some of the doctors in the town that I live in. And I remember my grandmother would talk about them all the time. This is my doctor. This is my doctor. I see about the doctor said this, Dr. X said this, Dr. Y said this. I need to make sure I do what the doctor says. And I think as you're describing it, the family doctor is really, you know, a part of the family. I remember when, and this is just a quick little story. I remember when I had my pediatrician and then I turned 18 and I made, I had like some allergies or something and I made an appointment to go see him. And I got there and they're like, you're 18. You can't come here anymore. I was like, I don't even know where to go. Like, what do I do now? Like, I, you know, I've known you my whole life. But I think that's the kind of impact that the family doctor can have on the flip side after you turn 18. So what's going on in Atlanta? Talk to us about that. What's going on out there in Georgia and ATL? Talk to us a little bit about that. So I love Atlanta. I went to med school here. And then I actually, for two years, moved up north to Philadelphia and Atlanta City area. And then I said, oh, I miss Atlanta so much. I have to come back (laughs) for residency. And so I'm very happy I matched at Morehouse. But right now, unfortunately, we've been opening back up some businesses. And I think it's too early. We'll see in two weeks. That's kind of when everything will peak. I'm hoping that there's not like a huge spike in cases because that would mean more people are sick. I want people well. But I think the evidence shows us that it might lean that way. And so I tell people who are in Atlanta, my friends and such, try to still limit yourself and your distancing. Wash your hands. Have good hygiene practices. Wear a mask. When more people wear a mask, when someone who's infected wears a mask and then coughs, their risk of transmission is lower than if they never had the mask. But when someone who's infected has a mask and then they cough around someone who also has a mask, their risk of transmission is less than 10%. That's pretty good odds, I would say. You know, 90% that the transmission is not going to be infectious. It's actually a little lower than that, like 5%, but just to be safe, I'll say 10%. On the daily, the day-to-day, so like if we're going out, because you know this is a conversation that I think a lot of people have, So if I'm going to the store, I got to go to the grocery store. Should I be wearing a mask? If I'm going to gas station, like when should the mask be on? And when should all times that you are outside the house? And even sometimes in the house. Like for example, if you have a loved one like myself, if someone was to come over to my house, I would wear a mask because I'm more high risk because to be an asymptomatic carrier. I've been out the house. I've been around COVID patients. I could have it. I don't have any symptoms, but I could have it. It's possible. So if I wanted to be absolutely reduce the risk, like let's say it was my grandmother who came over, she's at high risk. She has high blood pressure and she's 73 years old. We should both wear masks if we're going to be around each other, even in the house. I would say anytime that you leave the house, you definitely need to have a mask on at the gas stations, use gloves. Those are just easy things that can reduce your risk and make you less scared, if that makes sense. Because you're like, okay, I'm doing, you know, those are simple things, a mask and gloves. It's not like asking you to do something very extreme in order to reduce your risk. Mask, gloves, wash your hands. So yeah, those are things I would tell people to do if they want to reduce their risk. You might still get COVID. Most people recover. Like I say all the time, preventive medicine. How can we prevent the transmission? (laughs) Washing your hands, wearing gloves and masks, and then changing the gloves that you're wearing and trying to have social distancing as much as possible. They have the testing now, and then they said that, who knows who they is, but they said they're finding out that the virus was actually here before we thought it was. Like, it sounds like it was here as early as February, and now I think February 6th is the first, I think, confirmed death that they had here in California of someone that they referred to it as COVID-19. And I wonder how much sooner we're going to see that it was here. And what are your thoughts on the re-trans... Like, if you've had it once, can you get it again? What are your thoughts on that? You can get it again. (laughs) They're still doing research about that. If you've had it once, it's kind of like having the flu once. If you had the flu once, you know when you're about to get the flu. 
So that helps you, though, because you start upping up your vitamin C. You start sleeping more. You start taking your natural remedies that you do at home. And I'm not here to say what should be the remedy, but you know that you're about to get sick. Versus like people who haven't had COVID before, they don't really know what it feels like. The other thing is, if you've had it once, you're going to use better safety practices. You're going to say, this is real. I yeah. need to wash my hands. Yeah. <laughs> so your probability of getting it is actually lower in that sense because you'll have better hygiene practices. You'll be wearing a mask because you know it's real. You don't want to go through it again because it's very devastating to the body. It affects the major organ systems. And some people say it feels like they can't breathe. That's a feeling no one wants to feel. So I would say, yes, you can get it again. Is it rampant that people are getting it? No, I would say that. But is it possible? Yes, it is possible. You've thoroughly answered every question I had. Is there any other topics that you feel like, you know what, hey, this is something that people ask me or anything else that you would say that would help the listeners as we continue in this new normal? One thing that I want to really emphasize is the preventive medicine aspect. This did not have to get out of control. There could have been more public health initiatives that could have helped slow the spread. And really listening to how we all can help each other with our health. I think that's very important, the collaborative effort of public health. So everyone doing their part to make sure the whole is healthy, whether that be vaccines. So the reason why a lot of people don't have like polio anymore, the crippling disease, is because people get vaccines. So then people who can't get vaccines, like unfortunately those who have HIV as children, which is of course, whatever you think about HIV, it's children. So it was probably transmitted to them or some type of other immunodeficiency. Those people can't get those same vaccines. And so by us having vaccines though, we don't get sick. So if we're never sick with polio, we can't transmit polio. And so that's why vaccines are so important. That's why public health really works. Water system. So if everyone does their part to make sure that the water is not tainted, we make good governing decisions. Like, you know what happened in Flint? The officials chose bad choice and that hurt and killed thousands irreparably, electing good officials that are going to make good laws. That goes into public health too. And then electing to build a park in your neighborhood. That's public health. All those things as a community matter. And so by us staying inside, we've saved thousands, if not millions, honestly. It could have really gone out of control worldwide, for sure, of lives. And I think people need to give themselves a pat on the back, recognize that, yes, I did struggle at home. Even I struggle at home, and I know how important it is for us to stay at home. I struggle because of you know, cabin fever, that's real. And I know a lot of people are dealing with mental health, have a lot of patients that are calling me about their mental health struggles. Those are real things that people are going through. But the sacrifices as well that people are making are admirable. Those people are heroes as well, even though they're just staying home. It's the public health issue that has helped save thousands, if not millions of lives. And so I think that's an important thing to remember from the COVID-19, that if we all do our part, the whole becomes better. Awesome. Like I said, you're knocking these questions out. (laughs) As you know, this is the Minority Money Podcast, and we are changing the complexion of wealth. Yes. You graduated high school. I mean, you're like the real life female Doogie Hauser. Like, I know you've heard this before. I get that before. Yeah, I get that a lot. (laughs) I mean, like you over here, like, the Black female Doogie Howser at that. Love it. I think it's awesome. Thank you. So I'm like, what motivates you and inspires you to continue to grow and learn? So for me, it really is my ancestors. So I'm the descendant of slaves. And so I always think back to that. That was always instilled in me. My parents both went to college. They met in college, fell in love in college. So having their example was important. They went to HBCU, Prairie Lane, them in Texas. And so... They always instilled to us that the reason why we have these gifts and the reason why God blesses us and those things of that nature is because we need to use our gifts to help others. So that really motivates me, especially to help minority people. Because like I say, I'm the descendant of slaves. I truly think I'm my ancestors' wildest dreams. And the fact that they could overcome so much adversity to live long enough to create descendants. And then those descendants live long enough and overcome their adversities to create more descendants. So then I would have a chance. I just think about that at night 
And it just makes you say, they can do it. I definitely can do it. What I'm going through, it's mental. It's not physical most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) There are definitely some times where it is, but it's not physical. It's mental. I just need to get past this hurdle in my mind. And that really helps me. I get peace of knowing, man, somewhere out there, my great-great-grandmother never thought that her children, let alone her great-great-grandchildren, would live on and do something great. And that legacy really means something to me, carrying my family name. My dad used to always say before we left the house, remember you're a Peterson and that means something. And just, I believe in what you speak is true. And that really just spoke to me as a child that, man, I'm going to be something. I don't know what. I wasn't one of those people who thought I was going to be a doctor since I was five. I really didn't think about starting to be a doctor until the end of high school, beginning of college. I think that his words spoke over me and just the legacy of doing something good for the Black community, for the world as a whole, matters to me. And I can feel God speaking to me often about there's something that you're supposed to do to help other people. So that keeps me going. It's not always easy. It's not always easy. I want to tell people that too. It's not always easy because social media makes everything look glamorous and I always try to keep it really real. That's why my podcast is called Real Medicine with Dr. Rocks. It's not always easy, but it's always worth it. And I think that's important. You are definitely wise beyond your years. Like I'm listening to you speak (laughs) and I'm like, the stuff that you're saying, it's powerful. Like it's powerful and it's something that I always say is, I always say I'm built for this and I'm built for this. And then people will say to me and I'll say, well, I got that blood of a slave in me. That's why I don't quit. Like I got that blood of the slave in me. So I can't, you know, and, and people don't, like I don't say that to a lot of people, but people that know, they hear me say that term, blood of a slave. And they're like, you know, they look at it and I'm like, right, you gotta understand like slavery for a lot of black people is only like two, you know, three people ago. I put it in people, not in generation. I even say three people ago. My grandmother told me stories of her grandfather telling her when they freed the slaves. Like it's not yes. that far away. Right. My grandma picked cotton. That just tells you a lot about how far, but how close we are to that reality. It is very, very close. So do you think education has, well, you know what? I like this one for you better. How has your family supported you on this journey to? So my dad was in the military. My mom was a teacher and a counselor. So I always knew that higher education and my sister. So my sister is like a genius. I'm actually probably the least smart. And people would say, oh. I'm just saying, I truly believe that because my sister is a genius and my parents are very bright as well. So I'm the hard worker. That's what I do. I try to work hard and I have personality. Those are my strengths. (laughs) And so I always knew that like higher education was in my future because I had their example. I tell a lot of parents, a lot of parents ask me, how do I get my child to graduate at 15? And I tell them, well, do you have a high school diploma? Because that's step one, right? And they might not, right? But then emphasizing to your child, even though I didn't get this son or daughter, it's important for you because education can open doors. And just emphasizing that they can do it. I think that children need to be instilled with that you can do it. It might be hard, but you can still do it. You can do hard things. I think that's one thing that my parents really gave us is confidence. There was a lot of naysayers, a lot of adversity. People were like, how are you going to let her graduate early at 15? My sister graduated at 16, actually. So we both kind of graduated young. And people used to say a lot, but my parents had given us confidence of just independence and confidence of knowing who we were, despite what people say. I think that's important, especially as Black children, because there's a lot of rhetoric that the nation tries to tell you that you're not good enough, that you're not beautiful, that you're not smart, that you can never be anything. My parents just did not give us that mindset. They were like, you can do it. You will do it. How can we help you do it? Within reason. Because they never really babied us or coddled us. But then I will say, and I always try to keep it real, like I said, my parents helped a lot financially during college. So I went to a state college on purpose because it was cheap. It was like 3000 a semester for tuition. So that was like nothing compared to like the 50000 sometimes I hear other people paying. My parents, I don't think, could have afforded that. But $3,000, they could afford a semester. And so that was helpful because I didn't have to work. I would do like uh, volunteering, which helped my resume for med school. Plus, I just love volunteering. And then I would do like these summer programs that would give me a stipend and then a few loans here and there and then a few small scholarships here and there. 
So then that helped a lot because you don't have to juggle school and work. And then med school, I just lived off loans. And that way, my parents helped me in that they gave me some financial footing. And then they also gave me confidence from an early age and an example. I think that's the big thing, the example. Like, even my parents having a happy Black marriage, that's not always the case for everyone. And I think that really impacted me because I was built in on love. Yeah, I heard people, that's the new, like, trendy thing that people say. Don't date people who are built on survival. Some people are built on survival. Well, I was built on love. But they taught me survival. They taught me the world is rough. They always were real about things. They always explained things. From a young age, I knew, like, for example, this is a good example. From a young age, I knew what sex was because my parents were like, you need to hear this from an adult so you don't hear it from your little 11-year-old friends. Those are hard conversations to have with a child. But it was important because I never was curious. I never was like, oh, I'm going to act out and do these things or whichever, get distracted. Because I already knew what it was. My parents told me what it was. So any choice I made was my choice as opposed to like peer pressure or trying to like experiment and figure things out. Or like keeping it real about like everyone is not going to like you. Or like you're not always going to win. And if you want to always win, you need to work harder and things of those things. Just being really real about the world. There's racism in the world. Life is not fair. Lots of lessons of life not being fair. And that's okay. Even if it's not fair, it doesn't mean you quit because it's not fair. It's just not fair. Those are the realities of life. It's going to be okay. How can we help you do better? Or how can you help yourself do better? My parents had lots of lessons about that. And then raising us like with a godly mindset. I wouldn't even say like, we weren't raised in the church. They weren't very religious. But more so like the spiritual thing that people say of like, we pray, we follow God's principles. I think those are all important things that they gave us structure and, and morality. And it goes back to that God gave us gifts, whatever those gifts are. Some people have artistic gifts. They're so artistic and wonderful in their expression. That helps somebody. And then some people have like a mindset. Some people have the gift of voice. Whatever it is, using that gift and helping others so i feel like i'm rambling now but just <laughs> people ask them what do you think was the difference i think for me it really was my parents that was the difference they gave us the blueprint i tell people that all the time my parents gave us the blueprint as long as we didn't f it up there was almost no way that we could like fall off <laughs> it was like the blueprint to success if you follow what we tell you but make it your own my parents were never hard on us. They were like, hey, you got to do what you want to do. But if you do it, just let us know. So if something happens, you know, we can kind of save you from it. <laughs> but having that open communication. And like I said, those are really hard conversations to have with a child. Knowing your child, can they handle some of those conversations? And then letting your child have some independence on things. Because you would see these people go to college and they would just, you could tell they had never been outside of their parents' opinions and stuff, but they were just wild out. Versus me, I had been going to summer camps since I was like 10. Every summer, like gone for like two, three months, you know, really experimenting and testing whether I could do the independent thing from a young age. It's not for every child. You have to know your child. I'm not a parent, but just speaking as being a child, like, for example, my sister was more shy. So, you know, that wasn't really her thing going away in the summer. She did go away in the summers, but it wasn't a priority versus me. I love socializing, talking, making new friends. So when I would go away for the summers, I really learned like, okay, how do I respond to peer pressure? Am I peer pressure? How do I respond to making my own decisions about things? How do I respond to making my own schedule for the day? You know, if we have homework or whichever in the camp, do I actually do it or am I lazy and procrastinate? So all those things helped us because now my sister is a judge at 23. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Isn't that crazy? I think that's crazy. Now, people always talk about me, but she's crazy. We might have to get her on next. We might have to have her on. <laughs> Maybe. Um, if she agrees. Like I said, she's kind of shy. But I'm not the only example. I want, I don't want Black kids to hear that. I'm not the only example. I have a mentee who is 13 at Georgia College. I won't shout her out, but just give her story. And she... It's 13 at Georgia College. And so she's doing great things and, you know, still having normalcy in life. But people ask me that a lot. They're like, do you feel like you missed out? I don't feel like I missed out. I had a great time in college. I used to go out all the time. I have friends still from college. 
I think people think that like hearing you do all of the stuff that you did, like we don't do a good job of wrapping our head around the possibilities of focus, commitment, drive, you know, support system. Like we don't wrap our head around that and we don't see it a lot. So when we hear someone that we would perceive as an anomaly, it's like, oh, wow, well, she's just special. She's just different. And what you're telling us is I had a good family support system. I had my struggles just like everyone else did, but I pushed through it and I made it. And here we are on the other side. And now the thing that I love that you're doing is you reach back out to another young lady and now you're mentoring her. With that, I want to follow up with this question. If you had a piece of advice for our listeners, what would that piece of advice be? I never want to push people towards religion, but God has been really influential in my life. There are some things I just can't explain, some favor that I just can't explain, stuff that shouldn't have happened, things that honestly, it looked like it was the end of the road. And then somehow it just literally turned around. And for me, I think that that difference was prayer, belief in God and just following what he says and literal miracles in my life and my family's life that I can only give to God. Then aside from that, because I know that there's people who don't believe in God, I also believe if you fall nine times, standing up 10 and really developing a resilience, because we only are on this earth for, let's say, 100 years. I'm going to give everyone 100 years. So we're only on this earth for 100 years. Who cares if the 28th year was a bad year? What if the 30th year is a great year? To keep going despite your circumstances. And that's easy to say. Like I said, there are certain milestones that haven't hit in my life. Both of my parents are still alive. I couldn't imagine if I lost a parent. You know, it's a hard stage losing a child, you know, finding out that you have stage four cancer. But there are people who make the most of those situations. And I hope to be those people. That's what I want to say. I hope to be someone who always makes the best of a situation, even when it's hard. And I've tried to do that in my life. Like I said, I failed. I've been embarrassed. I've made great mistakes. I've done stuff I'm not proud of, as we all have. And so I had to overcome those things, especially at a young age. I think that was the hardest part, being young, that I just didn't have the maturity tools that I have now and will develop even more later to deal with some of those things. But I did. I did deal with them. And so now I'm a better person and a more mature person for them. And so the resilience is one thing that I really hope that most people can get through. Like if something happens and you're down at the bottom and seem like there's no hope, just getting back up, even if you have to crawl, eventually you will cross the line. And people don't want to hear that. I think that's the thing. I'm a millennial, so I know it's true. And Generation X is below us. People like things that are quick and fast. Our attention spans are at an all-time low. It's like something like seven seconds. It goes down a second like every three years. It used to be 10 seconds years ago. Now it's seven seconds. Our attention spans are really low. So it's hard to tell you that you might have to grind for five years before you ever see fruit of something. I don't think people want to hear that. (laughs) But I think that people like, you know, sometimes I tell people it's in you, not on you, right? And if it's in you, then I think Gatorade had a slogan back in the day, and I will wrap up with this because you are an inspiration, okay? You're an absolute inspiration, not only to the people that listen to your podcast, you're an inspiration to me. I'm like, man, I need to go back and do some stuff. And not only that, but just to encourage my daughters just to be whatever they want to be, you go ahead and do that and just do that. And if you make mistakes, then we're here to clean up any mistakes that you make. That's what we're here for as a support system. But what I wanted to say about the Gatorade was they had their slogan. That was their old slogan. And there's something about when something's in you. So the way Gatorade was founded, a lot of people don't know this, it's just a quick little story. Gatorade was founded at the University of Florida because it aided the Gators, right? So it was Gatorade. And what was happening was they were the first half team. They would come out in the first half and they would always win. They would do well. But the second half came, they didn't have anything to push them over the top. And so the University of Florida made Gatorade. And so when everybody else was drinking water, the Gatorade would kick in and help with the electrolytes. It would replenish, refuel, and rehydrate for them. Gatorade should pay me for this. But so that's what would happen. And it was what was in them that would propel them in the second half of games to be able to get the job done and win the games. So 
it's in you, not on you. And obviously you have something inside of you that's driving you. And what you're telling our listeners is they need to have something inside of them that just says not to quit. If people want more of Dr. Rocks, what social media are you on? Where can they find you? Because people need this inspiration. Where can they get a hold of you at? Thank you. Thank you so much for all your kind words. I'm always humbled by what people have to say. Because to me, I'm just a regular chick. <laughs> I really am. I'm a regular person. But you can find me online um, on Instagram. That's the most popular social media at Dr. D-R, Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y, Roxanne, R-O-S-A-N-N-E. That's Dr. Ashley Roxanne. Or you can find me on YouTube, same principle, Dr. Ashley Roxanne. I have a few videos on there talking about more medical stuff versus my Instagram is a mix of travel, medical, and just my life, what I like to do. And then I also have a podcast called Real Medicine with Dr. Rock, where I talk about the real aspects of medicine that no one really talks about, like depression in medicine, especially right now, there's higher suicide rates. As providers are pushed to the limits with COVID-19, there's also talk about like loan debt, dating in medicine, how people manage medicine and their family lives, things of that nature, and really getting down to the gritty things that people don't always want to talk about. That's what's on my Real Medicine with Dr. Rock's podcast. But overall, I'm just trying to help people with my platform whether that be, like you said, trying to inspire people to push the limits and not give up. Um, I think that's the big thing. And I want to let people know that there are real people out here, regular people out here that are living their dreams and you can too. There's nothing really special that I've done, but just continue to go. You've done a lot of special things. Graduating <laughs> high school at 15, graduating college at 19, entering med school at 19. I mean, the list goes on. But what I wanted to do is I just wanted to thank you once again for coming on to the show. It was an honor to have you as a guest. And I learned a lot just about you as a person and about the practice that you're trying to build, just your outlook on life. And like I said, you are wise beyond your years. So thank thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to wrap up with that. So this is the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know. That really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here. And until next time, 